you can defer tax on the real estate sales, obviously through that 1031 exchange. What we've done is taken advantage of the bonus depreciation and accelerated depreciation. So, Thank you so much for tuning in to Journey with Christian D. Evans podcast. I'm your host, as always, Christian D. Evans. And guys, we have a very special guest. If you're one of those individuals that want to pay less in taxes, we all do. They want to create passive income through real estate. You want a guy, a guidance about selling your company, which is most of you guys are wanting to exit at some point. You need some guidance to navigate through that. Or they want to upgrade your financial team. Having the right solidified individuals, A players on your team to really help you grow and sustain and preserve your wealth. Well, that's the reason why I have this next guest on. He has built Family Freedom Office to help entrepreneurs produce predictable income, create their ideal life, and build their legacy. They are a registered investment advisory firm, operates as a multifamily office. They advise their, your guys' family as if it were your own family. Their ideal client has built a successful company, accumulated eight-figure net worth, and wants to run their money like they run their business. He's also uh, very, very well established, 40 acquisitions in the real estate market with $700, $700 million in their portfolio, and a financial advisor to the half percent. Please welcome the CEO and founder of Freedom Family Office, the one and only Noah Rosenfarb. How you doing today, Noah? Thanks so much. I'm doing great. Thanks for that kind introduction. Well, no, I'm really excited about diving into this because one of the things before we dive into all the strategies and the planning and the navigation, all the fun stuff we're going to be talking about in your in your bio, you talk about how helping individuals that you, you quote on this, you help in helping families cope with divorce. You encounter entrepreneurs that ultimately prioritize their desire for success over the needs of their parents, resulting in divided wealth and lackluster portfolios. And I thought that was really interesting. So help me understand a little bit more about how by helping individuals work through divorce, reallocating their wealth and all that frustration, how that has pivoted the way you think about wealth, preservation and legacy, Noah. Yeah, uh, and, and maybe even the story goes back to my own family and my parents' divorce uh, when I was three. But I, what I've seen over time is that uh, a lot of entrepreneurs are so focused on their financial goals and their business goals that they deprioritize their family goals and their relationship goals. And so that's really influenced our philosophy of becoming rich beyond money, which is really not only having that financial freedom, but also managing your calendar in a way that brings you joy and then finding the meaning and purpose in your life that goes beyond you know, yourself and your family. And how have you, because you mentioned, you know, obviously one of your priorities and one of your LinkedIn posts is really building a legacy, but also your wife and your kids. And have you always been that way, Noah, or has that been an evolution as you become a, a very family man and, and prioritize that? Total evolution, yeah. My wife's been a big help in that one. Uh, I would say from, you know, a, a young child until we had our first child, my primary focus was money and business and not necessarily uh, relationships and family. And my wife, you know, when we had that first child and, and we did turn 30 and one of my goals was to be a millionaire at 30, which was something that we were able to achieve. Uh, and she said, you know, Noah, there's no reason to keep running so fast because I don't think you're headed to the right destination. And so she helped slow me down 
and uh, you know make sure that we could appreciate the things that we had in our life now and not just work towards some future goal that may or may not come. So with that, I, I wanna get a little bit more personal. How did that hurt your pride or restructure your pride and embrace humility to uh, you know, use that as your foundation and your North Star? I think it helped me redefine what success meant. And historically, I guess, you know, growing up, I always thought of success being measured in dollar terms, in net worth, in income, in possessions and experiences. And I didn't really think about wealth or, or money or being what we now refer to as rich beyond money as that, you know, having your time to spend the way that you want having the impact on the people that you want. And, and of course, you know, I still believe that financial independence is a high priority and it's something people should strive for and plan for, but not in an absolute vacuum. See, what I find so interesting, it, it, and that's why I wanted to kind of talk a little bit about this, because it becomes the DNA of what you guys represent at Freedom Family Office and how you facilitate these relationships. Uh, and so I appreciate you kind of, you know, unpacking that a little bit further. So let's kind of dive into the exit strategy. You mentioned on your LinkedIn post, and, and I'm very guilty of this as well. When I had my exit, I called people, you know, and, and tax strategists after the fact, and instead of, you know, uh, pre-exit. Uh, and Noah, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, when someone is looking to exit strategically, okay, there are certain things that you can be established and need to be established prior to the exit. What does that time horizon look like normally? I know it's really contextual depending upon obviously what company, what, what they want to do, what their goals are, but what are you noticing? Like, should they reach out to you two years prior to the exit or maybe even before they're even thinking about an exit? What have you noticed is, is the, the prime time horizon? I'd say it's never too early. And if you are probably six months away from interviewing investment bankers, that's about where it starts to become too late. So, you know, if, you, if you've already hired your banker, if you're already going through fireside discussions, if you've already got your first LOI, there's still some things you could do, but you should really pick up the phone today, <laughs> you know, immediately. Uh, and, and I would say, you know, if you're before, six months before you're hiring a banker, anytime before then, you'll be in good shape, but it's never too early to get started. So let's talk, um, I know some of these questions, there's, there's certain opportunities here in regards to tax incentives or tax strategies. And Noah, if you could maybe you know, give us some case studies or cer certain circumstances or some families that you've worked with. Um, I know you won't be able to say their names or the numbers or whatever, but like say, hey, this was this situation, this is what we did, and this is how we were able to help them navigate uh, the exit strategy to have an effective, um, you know, mitigated tax bill. Yeah, and it, I would say it's very family dependent. It's time dependent on when they reach out to us. It's also based on their structure, their company structure, the way that they're likely to get acquired, whether they're going to be an asset sale or a stock sale. Um, if they're selling a private equity versus a strategic, often those would have different deal implications as well. But I'll give you uh, maybe two examples that I think would be powerful. And, you know, you may have some kind of deeper dive questions as, as I go through the fact pattern. Uh, but in one case, we have a proprietary tax strategy, proprietary meaning we're the only ones that implement it, uh, it, it and something unique to us, 
where in addition to providing estate planning and asset protection during the planning process for the sale of a business, we can also avoid the capital gains tax on the sale of that company, as long as it meets certain prerequisites and requirements. Uh, and so we were able to take a client who was going through the sale of about 50% of his equity and drop it into this structure. Uh, the, the net savings for him were quite significant. He, he was able to avoid 100% of the tax, but that came at a cost of the structuring, which is maybe about 20 to 25% of the taxes that he would have otherwise paid. And the, what's interesting about this proprietary structure is that the future earnings on the additional equity that he still has, which is going to come out to him every year in the form of distributions, but also taxable income, uh, he's not going to have to pay any tax on that ordinary income either because of the structure we've created. So super powerful, uh, not appropriate for everyone. It's really designed for an eight-figure exit, uh, usually better for C-corporations and S-corporations, uh, and there are some other you know, deal factors that are specific. But if your deal wouldn't meet those types of parameters, we have another uh, structure that we use, which is not proprietary. Uh, it's, it's not um, what many people think about when they hear of installment sales. There's a monetized installment sale, which is on the dirty dozen list for the IRS and is currently in the middle of litigation. Uh, but we use an installment sale without a monetization component. And what that does is it allows the seller to defer their tax up to 30 years. So a uh, great strategy that we often use for people who don't want to pay the taxes now. There's a cost to that structure. It's usually around 6% so that the uh, seller retains 94% of the sale price uh, as opposed to if they were in a high income tax state, maybe only you know 65% of that sale price. Or if they're in a no income tax state, maybe you know 78% of that sale price. So. Uh, you can compound more of your money and uh, provide you with, uh, you know, an additional return. It turns out, you know, assuming capital gains tax rates stay about the same, that you could have about 16% more income and assets uh, through that structure. So what really what you're looking at is when you're having an exit, your North Star is really just mitigating those that, 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 that tax. And there's a lot of different ways of obviously taking the distribution aspect, like you mentioned the proprietary method, but also the non-proprietary method and the way to structure that out. Um, with, with the tax constantly you know, changing, and you mentioned this in one of your LinkedIn posts, uh, with the tax strategy constantly changing from you know, uh, Trump, you know, um, Trump uh, administration to the Biden administration, vice versa, you know, and whether you're liberal or Democrat, it doesn't really matter. It's a matter of just the, the tax is always constantly living and breathing and, and there's always going to be things changing, adjusting. Um, how do you guys, what is your methodology and the way you think about it in regards to navigating this as, as things are changing at a macro level that you cannot control? Uh, and I'll go back to one thing you said around the tax strategies being the motivation being paying as little in tax. I'd actually challenge that and say our philosophy is really to help entrepreneurs achieve their goals and get clear on what those goals are. Oftentimes, part of achieving those goals is minimizing taxes. For other entrepreneurs, it's not. We had a, a great exit last year with one of our clients, a healthy you know, $70 million exit, and he decided he'd rather pay $13 million in taxes uh, because he felt like, you know what, this is 
an achievement of a lifetime. I did it here in America. I'm happy to contribute and pay my fair share. And God bless him. That's what made him feel most comfortable. Uh, you know, we don't try and impose our values on our clients. We try and listen to the clients and understand what's important to them and, and plan and design for that. And so with, with that as the guiding light, what we really try and then do is say, if you have an aversion to paying tax, if you want to keep more of your money that you've earned yourself, the best way to start doing that is by planning now for whatever that future is going to look like. And the, the more you could take advantage of existing tax laws while they exist, strike while the iron's hot because you never know which loopholes are going to close uh, with each administration. And so you want to take advantage when you can. And, you know, uh, I, I could give you some examples if that's helpful, too. Yes, please give us a few examples that you've noticing uh, people have taken advantage within the last few years. And I think I, I, I know a few, but I'd love for you to get your response. And then as well as what you're seeing and um, that, that are coming down that people should be aware of in regards to uh, you know, advantageous you know, strategies. So something clever that I came up with, a, a strategy that I co-invented with a, a Caribbean tax expert, was I created a business in Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico uh, created some tax incentives in 2012. And what they wanted to do was provide incentives for people to create their business on the island or to move to the island to receive their retirement income or their, their current working income. And I didn't want to move to Puerto Rico. I've got a young family. I enjoy living in South Florida. Uh, we didn't want to move. And so it took me about two years to figure out how I could leverage this law to to my advantage because I didn't think it would be around forever. And in fact, you know, the, the agreement that I have with the government is only a 20 year agreement. So even for me, even though I did make an agreement, my agreement only requires me to have one employee in Puerto Rico. They've changed the laws at points in time. They needed 10 employees. So you know, I got in it right at the right time when you only had to have one employee. There were times where they required you if you went as an individual to buy real estate. There were times that they did it. So it's looking at those tax laws to see when is the right time for me to jump in and take advantage. Now, when I took advantage of this, uh, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to break even on my return on investment of just you know costs and fees to get the structuring done for at least a year, maybe even two. But now that I'm like four or five years into that structure, my business, uh, which pays a 4% corporate tax, is owned by my Roth 401k, which is a, a unique tax strategy as well called the ROBS plan, R-O-B-S, rollover business startup. And so when I make, let's just say a million dollars in my Puerto Rico company, I pay 40,000 in taxes and I issue a $960,000 dividend. My brother who lives on the island pays no tax on that dividend because he's a resident. And my dividend goes into my Roth 401k. I pay no tax on that. And then I invested in real estate and private debt and securities. And if I have income, interest, dividends, capital gains, I pay no taxes because it's inside my Roth 401k. And eventually when I'm 59 and a half, if I want to take that money out, I can take it out tax free. Interesting the way you structure that. And so you're, you're all, I'm, I'm just intrigued by how you structure these, these different vehicles and you think about it holistically. Is that opportunity still present? Because I do know some individuals, you know, move from North, you know, California to Puerto Rico for that specific situation. But you're in a situation where you actually had it hosted at a business, but you still live and your residence is in, in Florida. And so you're still able to take advantage of that, um, you know, remotely, if you will. Correct. And, and let's say I didn't set up that Rob's plan component, which is owning the business inside the 401k. 
and instead I wanted to live in California, well, when I make that $960,000 dividend distribution as a California state resident, I'd have to pay federal dividend tax and California dividend tax. So I'd pay my 4% in Puerto Rico, I'd probably pay around another 30% or so. So I'd be at 34%, which probably isn't much, uh, you know, certainly better than what you'd be paying on a corporation in, in California today, or even an S-Corp with pass-through. You'd probably save about 30% of the taxes, even, even if you didn't move to Puerto Rico. Well, I think that's why I was talking to a friend of mine and he was looking at the, the cost ratio a little bit as well for the complicated instruments. Sometimes you have to establish, you know, whether it's funneling through a trust or a fund or whatever it may be for tax advantage, you know, uh, processes. And sometimes you do have to identify because the tax code is changing, adjusting. How do you navigate that accordingly? Like you establish, I was talking to a friend and he was saying he established something for the tax code a few years back. It was established and then obviously the tax code changed and it was not effective anymore so you know and then they had to like kind of tear down the whole trust and whatever and there was a whole complicated process so how do you navigate that when there is something that's okay it's working and all of a sudden something changes that you can't control and then obviously just navigate it from there because that's just the real world of life and and I would uh, go back to more of that philosophical approach and say each taxpayer has to understand what risks they want to take when it comes to their self-reporting as a taxpayer. So some people say, oh, you know what, I deduct my cell phone bill. I make personal calls off my cell phone, but I deduct 100% of my cell phone bill. I think everybody agrees that's somewhat realistic. Uh, maybe some people go to a trade show in Vegas and they go out to dinner and they deduct the, the meal and they deduct their hotel and maybe they stay you know, an extra night or two that they didn't have to, but they deduct that also. So we all get to decide what level of audit risk we want to take, how much of our income and expenses we were self-reporting. Uh, when, when these laws change or when you're looking to plan around a certain set of tax laws, you want to think through your ROI, not just in the cost, but in the complexity. And so what's happened over time, and I'll use my own family as an example, is when I started in the realm of having more complexity, it started with self-directed IRAs investing in private real estate investments. That's you know pretty run-of-the-mill type of tax strategy. Uh, certainly created an advantage for me and my family, but over time having four different separate self-directed IRA LLCs investing in a variety of different deals and then having my new 401k plan which also has a level of complexity and then establishing trusts and domestic asset protection trusts, spousal lifetime access trusts, you know, the complexity starts to get significant enough where I need a team of people to manage it which is why I built a family office. Uh, but as I've done that, I'm trying to reduce the smaller complexities that didn't add as much value that I started earlier in my life, kind of closing them up to focus on taking the, uh, where, I'm, where I'm willing to add complexity, I'm also adding a lot of value. Now you, I know you obviously have a huge portfolio in the real estate. Real estate is very well known for, for opportunities in regards to, you know, really uh, destroying that tax bill pretty quickly uh, with depreciation, accelerated depreciation, all those different fun things you can allocate. Um, outside of real estate, because I know you're an expert and we're going to be diving into that here shortly, but what other strategies, uh, you know, that are 
uh, very effective in the alternative investing space. Uh, I know uh, you mentioned one of your uh, LinkedIn posts, you know, talking about opportunity zones. That's kind of coming to the end of the, the those those you know the, the timeline of that. Uh, but it was very effective. People took opportunity and, and they infused capital in that, and they took opportunity of that. Um, what what are you looking at in regards to you know structuring in that alternative investing space that um, that ultra high net worth and high net worth individuals are allocating their capital to for um, you know not only growth but preservation. So one uh, structure that a lot of families aren't exposed to is referred to as private placement life insurance PPLI, and what PPLI does is. It enables you because of the power of the life insurance lobby. Most people don't really uh, grasp how incredibly powerful life insurance can be as a strategy. Uh, I'll share a quick story. I met a nine-figure net worth family, uh, really buttoned up. They, they, you know, I looked at their stuff and I was like, "Wow, you guys, you know, you're really impressive." They had no estate tax that would be due. All their trusts were properly structured and everything was essentially properly titled with with very few errors. Um, but I said, where's your life insurance? And the, the you know, second generation kind of new leader of the family said, life, you know, my dad has some life insurance, you know, just because he had to get it for the bank a long time ago, but we don't need life insurance. You know, I, I only had life insurance because we needed it. And I said, you know, the, the fallacy is that uh, wealthy families don't own life insurance because they need it. They own it because it's a good investment. And you know he, he tried to call me to the carpet on that. And uh, what I was able to do was show him how he and his wife could obtain a $63 million life insurance policy with very little money out of their pocket. They paid about $180,000 a year worth of premium. And the rest of the premium, $22 million worth of premium, was paid through a bank loan. And they uh, posted some stock that they owned that they didn't plan on selling, Amazon, Google, S&P 500 index fund. They just held that in a collateral account. Uh, and that policy's performed quite well. Uh, if they had you know, died prematurely, it would leave you know, 40, 50 million to their kids, uh, income and estate tax-free. If they live to their life expectancy, it should leave about 30 to 40 million to their kids and grandkids, income tax-free and estate tax-free. Uh, and so I think, you know, that's a strategy some people are unaware of as to how to leverage life insurance. In these private placement policies, you can own alternative investments. So you could own things that are highly frequently traded where you'd have short-term capital gains and pay no tax because it's inside of a life insurance policy. Uh, so private placement life insurance could be an interesting strategy. I also think the self-directed IRAs or the self-directed 401ks, like I was mentioning before, those are great strategies. Uh, for me, I do a lot of private lending. And so when I make loans, I'm generating anywhere from like a 10 to 14% average annual return, which normally would be taxed at ordinary income tax rates. But because I do that inside of my retirement plans, I pay no tax. So I'm able to compound at that 10 to 14% return, totally tax-free. So with the life insurance specifically, I want to dive into this, and I want to talk about the, the deferred, which is really interesting. But with the, tax, uh, the, the life insurance, I'm very familiar with it, but how do you look at it? Is there a 
you know, um, when you're looking at residential, it's like 10 times what, what you bring in. So if you bring in 50, normally you need a half a million. If you bring in 100, you need a million, whatever it may be. Like that's kind of the, the, the ratio, if you will. How do you look at it in regards to uh, the higher net worth, ultra high net worth, when they're looking at all the assets? Like you mentioned, you, you, you explained the structure of it, but if they have $100 million in assets or $10 million in assets, what does that ratio look like in regards to how much you need to cover? Not only, because like you mentioned, it does come in tax-free on the federal and the state, which is really, really important. And I don't think a lot of people understand that. And then two also, Noah, the, the misconception regards to term versus whole life versus universal. There's a lot of misconceptions behind those kind of different vehicles, and each one is very, very valuable. So first question, the second question for me, Noah. Uh, I'd start by saying life insurance is typically uh, taught by people who earn commissions when people buy life insurance. And so because that's really the sole place that consumers get their education, there's this inherent conflict of interest. And so uh, it's hard for even sophisticated entrepreneurs who get exposed to life insurance concepts to trust the, the person that's educating them because they know if, this, if they follow their advice, that person's gonna earn a commission. And in contrast, most people who refer to someone as their financial advisor, if that financial advisor doesn't collect insurance commissions, then typically they have a negative attitude towards insurance products. Uh, I don't know, again, if that's just the conflict of interest that if you manage money for a living and now your client's gonna take out a million dollars a year to pay life insurance premiums, you now have a million dollars a year less that you're earning fees on, and so maybe you wanna turn a blind eye to thinking that that might be a good investment for them. Uh, so I think the conflicts of interest are inherent everywhere, and it's important for entrepreneurs to understand how they're getting educated, who's educating them, and whether or not they can really rely on and trust the advice that they're receiving. So with that as the precursor, I would say that life insurance is this great tool uh, that can be very powerful for a whole bunch of different use cases. One is the term insurance. You know, I, I've, I have my kids. Uh, when I had my child, you know, I decided I needed some insurance if something were to happen to me. My wife, I wanted her to be able to continue to stay home and raise our family. So I needed enough insurance because I didn't have enough savings by then. Uh, later in my life, I, I used permanent life insurance as a way to store my cash because I thought it was better than putting my cash in the bank, and that's proven to be true. Uh, and then as my life continued to evolve, and you know, I got to a point where I didn't really need insurance death benefits to pay estate tax, to help my family survive in, in my absence, I was really using insurance for an income stream in retirement. Uh, so I, I bought insurance where the bank paid 75% of the premium, I paid 25% of the premium, and, and through that investment, uh, I paid 30,000 a year for five years, I should get about a $90,000 a year tax-free income stream in retirement. Then I did that on my wife. I've had my brother do it. I've had my business partners do it. Uh, to create another arrow in the quiver. Um, and then, like I mentioned, for some families that wanna build a dynasty and wanna create dynastic wealth, this concept of premium finance life insurance where the bank's paying 100% of the premiums, they can get these monster policies. In the case of the family I was telling you about, that should add about 40 to 50% to their net worth that they leave to their kids. So, you know, really powerful tool. And it's just leverage. That's incredible. High leverage. That's that's remarkable. Um, I didn't realize you could do so much with, with with that life insurance. I appreciate kind of unpacking that. 
We're talking a little bit about also um, real estate, but also you, you mentioned obviously your, the way you structure it. Um, you, you've got some really intri intriguing ways of how you structure these things and how you think about this because you're obviously on the forefront of this and you know the code in and out. So when you're talking about obviously deferring those dividends, explain that a little bit further and how you structure that out um, to obviously optimize that, that mitigation. So specifically with these installment sales where you uh, can defer your taxation, is that what you're referring to? Well, the real estate side of things. Yeah, you, you were mentioning on the second part where you were talking a little bit about the where you were able to stru structure it out, where you were able to defer that out. Explain that a little bit further for our audience. Uh, so on the real estate side, one of the things that we haven't done in the last handful of years is what's referred to as a 1031 exchange. And that's probably the most common tax code related to real estate that people are familiar with. It allows you to sell an asset and take those proceeds and buy another similar asset, another investment property, and you can not pay any taxes. And it's a really magical section of the tax code uh, combined with a whole bunch of other real estate related tax benefits and, and reasons that so many wealthy families own real estate. When you study ultra high net worth families, you find about a third of their net worth is usually in real estate and, and most of that being investment real estate, not personal real estate. So uh, one of the ways that you can defer tax on the real estate sales, obviously through that 1031 exchange, what we've done is taken advantage of the bonus depreciation and accelerated depreciation. So. In 2013, I bought a building in Arkansas, which I sold in 2018. I had a capital gain, but I bought a new building in uh, Atlanta. And when I bought that building in Atlanta, 75% of my investment was uh, reported as a loss on my K-1 in 2019. And it, it just so happened that that was the same amount of my capital gain from the asset that I sold in 2013. So I didn't have to pay any tax on that 2013 sale. Now I have a new 2019 asset. It just so happens I'm about to sell that 2019 asset in the, the next month or two. That'll result in a significant capital gain. Uh, but again, what I'm doing in 2023 is I'm buying more real estate using the depreciation to offset my capital gain. So as long as I continue to invest more money in real estate, not less, uh, then I'll always have these losses to offset my gains. So this is where I think about this game specifically is, you know, I, I've got a, some individuals that deployed a lot of capital in the private equity as well as, you know, direct direct deals or like secondaries. And the thing is, is obviously you and I know that that's maybe a five, seven year illiquid period. But when they have a liquidity event, obviously you're expecting a large return, a good you know internal rate of return. So basically what you're and I just want to make sure I'm, I'm kind of picturing this out what a lot of what they do is when they have that liquidity event, maybe just makes math simple, they get a million dollars back after they, they give it a million. So now they brought it two million dollars. Wonderful. Now what happens a lot of times is like what you just explained, Noah, is then they come over here and deploy capital into the real estate side of things. And what happens is you know, they they may do syndication, they may do direct deal, whatever it may be, but now they've accelerated that depreciation by quite a bit so that a million dollars normally would be taxed as a capital gains, which would be 20% plus whatever state you're in. But now because of that, you're over here and saying, hey, now uh, accelerate depreciation. Now these individuals can really not you know, decrease that tax bill by a tremendous amount, depending upon the size of that real estate investing uh, investment. And that's how the wealthy are able to pay no tax at all even kind of remove themselves away from the capital gains because they leverage the real estate uh, 
definitely a real estate game in that manner. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll share kind of two maybe more nuanced points to that. So a real estate professional is a tax status that is also self-reported. I've been a real estate professional for 23 years, 25 years. Um, and, and it's a self-reported tax status. Uh, in order to report that tax status, you need to meet a five-pronged test. The two most important points of those tests are one, it has to be 700 or 50 hours or more of involvement in real estate. And the second is that it should be more than anything else you're doing. So you can't do anything more than you're doing real estate. Uh, and then there's three other tests as well. So if you meet those tests, you could be a real estate professional where your real estate losses offset not just your real estate income, but really any income. And, and so that's one of the code sections that I always take advantage of. I, I have my family office is a US-based business. I mentioned before my Puerto Rico-based businesses, but my family office, I generate US-based taxable income. And I wanna make sure I'm buying enough real estate, not just to offset my real estate gains, but also my ordinary income from my family office earnings. Uh, and I do that as a real estate professional. If you're not a real estate professional, if you're investing in syndications as a limited partner, then your real estate losses only offset real estate gains. Now, some accountants will let you offset those real estate losses with other gains that you have that were passive. I don't believe that's the correct interpretation of the tax law, but taxpayers are doing it all the time. Again, it's one of the benefits of our self-reporting system is you get to tell the government what the results are, and it's only if they come back and ask you some questions that you've got to defend yourself. So, and I appreciate that differentiation in regards to syndication versus a direct deal. Direct deal is obviously, you know, going out there and you can obviously take all the, all the, you know, added benefit, but the syndication, it's only for real estate losses. Just want to make sure I, I uh, understand that correct. correct. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Correct. So with that being said, then, um, I want to talk a little bit, pivot back to the businesses um, when they're exiting. I had a friend of mine that was going to exit, and before he exited, he had to reestablish the HQ, which was in California, to a, I, I forget where he, I think he stationed it. I don't know if it was in Florida or if it was Delaware. But anyways, my point is he had to move the HQ because he knew the tax on the back end was going to be devastating. And I want to talk a little bit about, you know, how to think through that process in regards to when you are in a state and you are looking to exit maybe an eight or nine figure you know there are certain things that you have to obviously establish we just kind of talked a little bit about that but also um, you know just making sure that you have all the, the, the right infrastructure established yeah I would say uh, anytime that you start to get towards that million dollar ordinary income level you wanna go beyond your current tax preparer and your current CPA firm and get counsel of a tax strategist. So in our family office, one of our team members is our chief wealth, uh, tax strategist, Chris Hines. He's educated not only as a financial planner, but also as a tax attorney. And so he provides tax strategies to our clients so that we can look at it holistically. Because again, if you've got a C Corp in California, you may prefer to take on this proprietary tax structure and not have to move your headquarters and get perhaps a better result than moving your headquarters to Delaware and still paying the federal tax. So it's looking at it holistically. Uh, and I would say, again, it's, it's that tax strategist who's often educated as a tax attorney. So not someone that's focused on tax litigation, but someone that's focused on tax strategy. 
And what they're going to do is they typically have a much broader outlook on the course of affairs from where you are today making that million dollars plus of income to what the future is that you're thinking of creating whether that's selling in three to five to ten years whether it's holding this business forever whether it's making a hundred million a year or ten million a year and how you want to spend those proceeds and so thinking through that general tax strategy is what's going to help you with all the tax structuring most accountants are really much better at looking in the rearview mirror to report what's already happened and then at usually if you if you do meet with them in the third or fourth quarter they might tell you if you want to accelerate expenses into this year pay them now not pay them next year to reduce your taxable income or hold off on invoicing until january because you want to reduce your income for this year so that's what most cpas are looking at is this year next year what most tax strategists are looking at is the broader kind of time frame of how long are you going to own your company and when we do our work inside of our family office and we develop tax strategies for families we're really looking sometimes two or three generations down the line see and this is why i'm so glad we pivoted this direction because in, in your step two you say where do you want to be and then step three how will you get there and you know we, we talked about the first step which is kind of where where are you now unpacking kind of the thesis your financial statements your current estate plan etc where do you want to be what I found interesting is you have to be clear on what that path looks like. And Noah, what I've talked to is it's hard for people to think generation two, generation three, let alone, you know, a week, a week from, you know, today. Right. So I'd love to ask, you know, you know, let's, let's talk a little bit about how you are able to help your clients think generation two, generation three and establishing that plan, but also giving flexibility for the evolution of the plan. So it all starts with uh, an exercise that we created called True North. And we sit down with, a, you know, in most cases, a couple. Uh, you know, oftentimes one of those spouses is, is actively engaged in their business and the other spouse is not. Maybe the, the spouse that's actively engaged in the business is actively engaged in the financial planning and the other spouse may not be. But when we talk about what is it you're trying to accomplish in your life, that's a conversation both spouses want to have together. And so we encourage, that's really where we start with every family is, what is it you're trying to do? Where, where is it you're trying to go? What are you building? And uh, by eliciting that conversation in a structured way and coaching and guiding them through the exercises that we've developed, we help families gain that clarity of what that true north is for them. And what is most interesting and you know, certainly been my experience is that more of the you know four key questions that we'd ask that your audience could just write down the answers to is you know if money were no object if you went out and you bought a lottery ticket you won 300 million so take money off the table who would you spend more time with and who would you spend less time with and what are the things you'd start doing and what are the things you'd stop doing and if you take the time to answer those four questions, my guess is 80 to 90% of the answers will not require you to have more money. They just require you to be more intentional on where you're investing your time and often what you're gonna say no to. And so, uh, you know, we try and help lead clients in that direction so that they can start focusing on what really is their priorities in life. So, and, and what I find so interesting about that is obviously as they, they, they evolve, the answers evolve as well, because obviously something, you know, four years ago, your answers obviously are today are, are going to be different than, you know, five years from now. So, Noah, 
as as someone that's able to help facilitate the right vehicles, right, the wealth the wealth strategies or the right different vehicles for them to produce and preserve and grow their wealth naturally for their generation two and generation three. How do you guys? Because obviously you mentioned obviously those, those you know asking those questions, but how do you establish the right flexibility in their plan and strategies to make sure that as their answers evolve, you know throughout their life the strategy or the plan evolves with them in the proper way. So the, um, there's a great author and, and thinker on this topic. His name is James Hughes Jr. He's a seventh generation lawyer. And uh, what, what James wrote about very eloquently and, and really influenced my thinking was around the difference between a gift and a tax structure. And when parents use tax structures as ways to mitigate taxes that require them to end up giving money and control to their children or grandchildren, that often creates problems and conflict. But when parents make gifts to their children and do it in ways that are tax structured, they tend to have much better outcomes. And I think what, what in practical terms, what that means is that some families they have, you know, newborn children, young adult children, you know, children that they certainly wouldn't want to hand over eight figures of net worth or nine figures of net worth to because they're not developed enough. But they've been convinced by lawyers and accountants to reduce their estate tax potential by giving assets into trust for which their children will be a beneficiary. And I think that's misplaced guidance. I think that, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of paying in little as tax as, as humanly possible. But I'm also a big proponent of not transferring wealth to people that don't know what to do with it. Because money that isn't earned can be more of a weapon than a tool. And we want to make sure that we're doing the education of our families so that we have confidence that we can make this gift to them and the gift will be a blessing and not a curse. So how do you how do you have that conversation? How do you structure the right boundaries and systems, just like you said, to anticipate that that may or may not happen, and to make sure that there are the right you know boundaries and systems, leveraging these vehicles to ensure that the wealth is preserved long term to hit generation three, generation four. I talked to another family office, and they they say that the 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 the, um, the lifespan for generation three and generation four are exponential small, like 5% only last of generation four uh, in, in regards to wealth. So, right. you know, just like you mentioned, you know, when you give someone a lot of money, but they don't have the right mindset, well, that, they can either dig a very big grave or they can build a very big mountain. It depends upon how their mindset is in, in regards to the wealth and the way they structure it. So what boundaries and systems to ensure that, like you mentioned, like, you know, that, that misplaced guidance, how do you navigate that with your clients? Uh, we try and encourage families to have uh, family retreats where they have an agenda that's focused around their family values, that's focused around what it means to come from this family, what it means to be a steward of the family's wealth. Not every family is that interested. And so again, it really depends on the goals and objectives of each individual family. Some people are very focused on making sure that their great-grandchildren can afford a college education or can live, uh, you know, go to private schools or do certain things that their family has been accustomed to doing, you know, stay in a lake house, fly on their private planes. Um, but most of our clients are eight figure net worth. 
So kind of, we, we have some nine figure net worth clients, but I would say the bulk of our clients are in that 10 to $100 million net worth range where for some people, they may believe that that's an endless supply of money. And for other people, they believe that, you know, you're just kind of entering the, the level of ultra high net worth. Um, it depends where you come from, depends how much you like to spend money and depends what, what you want to do with it. Uh, and so for some of those families, they don't really see how their $40 million at age 55 can turn into, you know, $200 million by the time they die. They just don't really believe the numbers and what the impact would be. And so we just have to wait and be patient. And a lot of times, you know, it's uh, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And so we're there to guide our clients, to help them with the issues that are most present on their mind today and to give them a glimpse as to some issues that we foresee that might be of interest to them. But usually it's on their timeline where we'll do the implementation. We can't push that rock uphill because it, it takes a lot of thinking and it, it's only worth the entrepreneur investing that thinking time when they believe it's critically important to them. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. And I want to ask, when you're having these conversations, like you mentioned, where, okay, growing that wealth a little bit, I've noticed a lot of families that exit out of, like, let's say, for example, a telecommunication. They like to, when they have established their wealth, they like to infuse that capital back into the telecommunication companies of some sort because they're familiar with that industry. They don't like to... Uh, we've all heard of diversify, but they don't like to diversify too much out of the industry because they're not familiar with those other industries as much as they are familiar with, with you know, the, the industry that they made their wealth in, which obviously through logic, it, that does make sense. However, though, uh, sometimes if, if you're not, if you, if you don't, you know, infuse some capital in real estate or other, you know, avenues or vehicles, then you are relying just on that thesis a little bit. So when you're having that conversation, do you gravitate toward that thesis in regards to, hey, if you made your wealth in, you know, consumables or, you know, telecommunications or whatever it may be, right, manufacturing, then stick in that thesis where you're familiar with, or do you say, hey, let's go ahead and leverage some other, you know, experts, a players on your team that are able to help you diversify that wealth so that you don't are, you're not on that, um, you know, you don't rely on that one industry. How do you, how do you think about it, Noah? I think most entrepreneurs concentrate to create and they diversify to protect. And so the reason for the diversification is to say, okay, I'm comfortable where we are. I don't need more, but I, I don't want less. And so how do I preserve and protect what I've built through diversification? And that's often what we're doing, I would say most effectively as a family office, uh, because people are coming to us usually at a time where they're done with their you know, concentrating to create phase of wealth accumulation. And now they're in that wealth utilization phase where they wanna take all the fruits of their labor that oftentimes required sacrifices that they don't wanna make anymore. And they wanna start living their, their best life. And they really wanna do all the things that they wish they would have done sooner. Um, but the concentration, let's say people do stay in an industry, Usually the reason they're staying in that industry is because they're also contributing non-financial capital to the company. They're contributing their network, they're contributing their brain, they're contributing their time. And so the, the, that concentration requires effort. Whereas when you diversify, you limit your effort. So when you invest in a portfolio of stocks and bonds, when you invest as a passive investor in real estate syndications, there's really no time requirement involved. So, so you can spend your time in other places. And I think that 
it goes back to what is the motivation of the family that we're counseling? Do they want to continue to invest their time building wealth? Or are they now at a point where they want to shift their attention and focus maybe to mentorship, to uh, building stronger bonds within their family, to supporting noble causes? And, and as you shift into that realm of more meaning and purpose in your life, you may not want to spend your time as much working in these concentrated areas. But, you know, again, I would say most of our clients are financially independent, never retired. They're always going to be making deals. They're always doing something of interest. They don't want to just sit on the beach and sit margaritas. And so it's a graduation. Once you get to that level, then it's obviously your your focus and your North Star becomes just slightly different than obviously, like you mentioned, growth. I want to talk a little bit about emerging markets as we've come into 2023 and, and onward throughout the, the 2020s. One of the things is we've noticing a more of a uh, more of a, uh, a flow of everybody really engaging. Right. People are deploying assets and capital in Saudi Arabia to obviously Europe and all sorts of different emerging markets that are very, you know, forefront of technology or, you know, just different opportunities. With that being said, I do know that we're talking about really the 0.001% that are able to actually, you know, take, um, uh, you know, take access or, or have ability to, you know, deploy capital in that. But no, with the individuals that you've talked to thus far, have you noticed where they deploy maybe a small percentage of their wealth into emerging markets to be able to, you know, at least play the game? Or have you noticed majority of them still kind of allocating most of their capital here in the States or more, you know, uh, North America broadly? Uh, I'll share with you my family's asset allocation, and then I'll kind of delve into you know more generalities. But uh, I've always taken all of my emerging market exposure through publicly traded investments, and I have not done any private investing outside the U.S. And there's a few different reasons for that. I would say the primary driver is that the expected rate of return in other countries in private deal flow is not necessarily significantly greater than what I, my expectations are in U.S. privately uh, held investments. And so if I'm going to venture, I just was doing due diligence on a deal in Vietnam, and I, I look at international deals all the time, and it was a land development deal, you know, building out some condos and selling them high-end condos in a suburb of Vietnam that where things are expanding into. And the projected returns were about the same as what the projected returns are on the build to rent multifamily transactions that we're contemplating doing here in the Southeast. So why would I want to take the risks of investing in Vietnam, the additional tax complexity, the exposure of you know liability and having to deal with Vietnamese courts if there's an issue, the familiarity of the US is just so much better for me that unless I was going to get such a significantly outsized return, I don't want to do it. Whereas in the public markets, again, it goes back to time and effort. So it's it, they're liquid investments, uh, they're publicly traded, they're publicly listed, you can get the information that you need. And so I have a greater comfort level. And I would say, in general, the vast, vast majority of our clients also obtain their emerging market exposure through publicly traded vehicles, and they get their private investments based in the US where they have greater comfort with the law, greater comfort with the culture, greater comfort with that, you know, things are going to go as planned. 
Okay, that's actually really good. I appreciate you explaining that. So you're, unless you see the opportunity as such a such massive, beautiful kind of uh, you know, strategy, then it really doesn't outpace the risk and, and, and the reward uh, associated with it. Let me ask you, you mentioned obviously the public traded. Uh, I do know some private equity, they have funds that are specific for um, you know, emerging markets, Asia um, yeah, and other different places. Um, what is your what is your thought process in regards to funds that are here based in like Carlisle or private equity that are based here, but then they deploy and infuse capital in those markets? Um, how do you think about that? Do you find that the risk and reward is it gives you some exposure to that, but in, in a more secure way? Certainly could. You know, it's better to have professionals on the ground that are representing you in your interests and not necessarily only representing the interests of the alternative party. So that's a better way to get that structure in place. But again, I'd look at what are the return profiles and do those return profiles provide you with enough of an additional return that whatever the risks are, because there's currency risk involved, I would say is the biggest risk is, you know, the US dollar has continued to be the strongest currency. And so as a result of investing offshore, if you were investing in another currency, you may have had good returns in that currency, but when you convert those returns back to dollars, they, they probably have lagged behind the US-based investment. So if, if what you're trying to do is get currency exposure, that's an interesting way to get your currency exposure and to diversify out of US dollars. And so that's just a bet that you know the other economies uh, currency will perform better than the U.S. dollar. And some people want to make that bet, especially now that the U.S. dollar has been about as strong as ever. Even though it's a, it's a weak dollar, it's just the strongest of all the weaks. So. Well, okay. So I, I see what you're saying. You really want to make sure that if you're going to have that exposure, you want to make sure you get some outsized returns to be able to obviously you know offset that. Because what you're basically saying is that right now there are better still opportunities and better deals here in the US that give you better, you know, upside potential than, you know, having to worry about too much of exposure or the tax liability, or all that, you know, all the other complexities of investing, uh, you know, externally from the US. Yeah, and, and, and if you want currency exposure, there's plenty of ways to get it. So you, you may find that it's easier to get your currency exposure through like foreign currency trading systems than through private equity. Well, I like how you how you think about it, Noah, because, you know, sometimes it is a contextual situation. Sometimes we see Israel or we see Saudi Arabia, they're making these leaps, leaps and bounds or, you know, United Arab Emirates. And we're seeing all that potential and all that excitement over there. But we have to put it into context and say, well, what's the risk and reward? Is it you know worth the, the, the return when here in the U.S. we can obviously get the same return and we don't have to have all the complexity of it? So I, I just uh, appreciate kind of sharing that uh, the the thesis or alignment behind it. Is there any country that's kind of on the radar? I know you look externally outside, you know, for direct deals as well as, you know, other exposure. Uh, are there any emerging markets that you are excited about right now? I know this is going to timestamp us right now, but I'd love to get your perspective just, you know, on, on overall uh, what you're seeing in regards to the emerging markets. I know ESG and impact investing is very sexy right now, AI, but I wanted to get your perspective on, you know, do you gravitate no, mostly to real estate because you're very familiar with it or you love to kind of, you know, look at other opportunities that are kind of making you lick your lips? Yeah, so I'm, I'm part of two uh, global networks of entrepreneurs that 
I, I place a high value on. One is uh, YPO, Young President's Organization, and the other being EO, Entrepreneur's Organization. Uh, YPO has 30,000 members around the world. EO has uh, 15,000 members around the world. And so I'm explo exposed to global business ideas and global deal flow. But again, it's never really excited me. I don't, going back to your thesis around, you know, can you concentrate for your whole life and, and do very well in one niche, in one industry? I think so. Can you diversify away lots of risks and do well? I believe so. And so I think for my family, for the eight-figure net worth families that we counsel, we can base our investments not exclusively, but you know, the vast majority of our investments would be U.S.-based. Even the S&P 500 index fund, which is a, probably the single largest holding for a lot of our clients, about 50% of the earnings of those S&P 500 companies come from outside of the U.S. So we get our international exposure through investing in U.S.-based businesses. And then in addition, we add some emerging market exposure, developed market exposure. But I've always found that the U.S. has been kind of the best place to be if you were a U.S. taxpayer, if you're spending U.S. dollars, if you plan to spend your lifetime here. And so, you know, currency is a, is a big part of that. Uh, there, there's a future where maybe the U.S. dollar is not as strong as it has been in the last hundred years. And I think that future is fast approaching and our uh, strategy may have to evolve with the times, but I don't think it's uh, upon us yet. Awesome. Noah, man, I really appreciate your time being on here. I know we kind of, you know, bounce all over the place, but just unpacking your thesis in regards to, you know, just helping us understand navigating the constant evolution of tax and how that's obviously always evolving, but how to take advantage of these different things and strategies that at the end of the day are very, very beneficial and are very underutilized for, for myself, but also for a lot of our audience members. Uh, and then as well as, you know, pivoting to understand how you think about, you know, your methodologies and how to think about the, that North Star and finding that North Star. And it's, it's really dependent upon each family in each context and what that foundation looks like and what vehicles to utilize and uh, you know there's a lot of different strategy behind it but helping us understand how freedom family office really helps you know establish that with each one of your clients uh, Noah for those that want to reach out that are looking to exit uh, and have the, that dialogue before they exit right they don't want to be post exit like hey Noah what's up they want to be pre exit um, how do they reach out to you how do they be part of what you got going on and learn more man so anyone that just wants to stay in touch and follow the content that we create can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Uh, but if you're interested in having a conversation with me or our team about your personal situation, just go to talktofreedom.com, fill out a short intake form, and we'll get you on a call with the proper people on our team to talk about what's most important to you. Uh, I've got a bunch of free resources, and maybe if you have show notes, we could link to them. I could, I could share them quickly if you think that's valuable. Yeah, 100%. I'll put all those links in the description below, guys, for those that are listening. So you can literally just copy, paste, and put that in your URL and obviously click on that. I would highly recommend it. Noah is very active on LinkedIn as well as he's got a lot of podcasts and then a lot of content on his website. So highly recommend just learning and listening and understanding what, his, what, what he's got going on and obviously deploy it in, in your own business. Um, so I, I would highly recommend reaching out to Noah. Noah, I really appreciate you being on here big time. Uh, and I want to ask before I let you go fully, um, you know, if you think about that young Noah, I know you're third generation CPA and accounting side of things. And if you think that young Noah, imagine that young Noah and what insecurities did you have to overcome to become the successful Noah that you are now? So I had to let go of a self-limiting belief that in order to have 
uh, a great life, I had to sacrifice my financial goals. And uh, you know that that's been a, a long evolution for me, but I've come to realize that I can actually have both. That the the limitations I place on my willingness to invest in for-profit activities, you know, work, so to speak, even though I limit that the number of hours and it, it's come down significantly over time, that doesn't limit my potential for what I could achieve in business. And in fact, I, I've kind of taken the reverse approach and said that by limiting my time, I'm helping accelerate what I can achieve because it requires me to build systems and teams to accomplish my goals without my involvement. That is timely wisdom. And that is a lot of wisdom right there. Guys, that is the CEO and founder of Freedom Family Office, the financial advisor to the half percent, my friend, Noah Rosenfarb. Guys, that is Journey with Christian Diaz's podcast. Until next time, be in common if you can.